Hello and welcome to another Note Up one-on-one and I'm doing it live again. I'm in San Francisco in a lovely little work cafe called Another Cafe. It's not the first time I've been here but I, I would recommend checking it out if you're looking for a place to work in San Francisco. Today I have with me somebody that I've wanted to interview for a long time. I work with him at NodeSource and his name is Nathan White, otherwise known as Nate. So Nate, why don't you just quickly tell us a bit about yourself and how people might know you. I've been involved in the Node community for quite some time. Got involved with Learn Boost back in 2009. So one of the first startups to launch with Node. I've uh, been actively working with it uh, at various startups and been fortunate to, enough to be working with NodeSource full-time for one year and contracting a year prior to that as a, a solutions architect. I want to delve into some, some of Nate's background. Whenever I meet with him, I invariably end up in some weird conversation about some historical thing that never expected to be. His, so Nate is a man full of stories, particularly about Node. So, Nate, let's start off with, what's your story about how you got into tech in general and programming specifically? I was fortunate enough to be raised by educators. My dad was a middle school, high school teacher, so being exposed to computers early on was something that came to, you know, came very early. So I think back in the mid to late 80s. I, I think the one thing that actually struck me that kind of started the whole journey was we had this in fourth grade, this kind of extracurricular thing after school where we could telnet into NASA's computers and kind of do a telnet thing. They were opening up like public data. So there was this whole thing that our school paid for this connection. And I remember going in after school and watching this and, you know, typing on the keyboard and like that realization that it's actually going and controlling a computer or getting a response back in Florida while I was living in Colorado just kind of blew my mind at like, I, what was I, like 9, 10, something like that. So that kind of set the journey off. You know, did a lot of things through the 90s. What really kind of kicked it off was actually doing like tech support over at Hewlett Packard, you know, after school, you know, tape backups and CD backup drives. Ended up at a European startup actually that was in that. And the city was Optimus, which was actually managing 3211 print stream data. It's kind of interesting. So what we were doing is actually transforming mainframe data into PDFs and making it archived and searchable. We were burning them onto CDs, so we know how relevant that is today. We had web interfaces on that as well. So it, it taught me a lot. I was actually around a lot of amazing engineers, like some guys that were had patents on OCR technology and that kind of stuff. So that kind of just kind of kicked off that drive. I was, you know, worked in that environment, you know, more of a operationals production kind of like data transformation from like 98 through like 2002, 2003. So, and that kind of then kicked off into web development, which we can kind of the more modern era, which we can dive into. Was it programming from the beginning? Yeah, so there was a hodgepodge. Some of it was just like operational. I think one of the more fascinating projects that I got to work on there was when things started rolling into web, total Microsoft shop. So D-List, Defense Logistics Information Services, had to set up a website for them and actually manage it and maintain it. That was entertaining. The security requirements, it was like this whole like three-ring notebook of like 100 pages. And that was my first introduction into secure, like real kind of like deep diving and security audits and whatnot. Painful. 
also, you know, had that fortunate experience of having an Exchange server crash on me, you know, and trying to recover corrupt, corrupt mail servers. And then also going through the whole scare of Y2K. But in the meantime, I was writing a lot of utility scripts and batch scripts in Perl. So it was a lot of, like, Perl glue, you know, kind of automated stuff here. There was a little bit of Windows scripting here and there, but I actually tried to keep things going back to Perl in that environment. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean's easy-to-use API makes integrating tools like Jenkins and Terraform simple. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. DigitalOcean community articles provide guidance on a wide array of topics that help developers build better and faster infrastructure. Many of the Node.js packages for different Linux distros are actually built and tested on DigitalOcean VMs by Node.js and Nodesource. Get $10 credit when you sign up for a new account through the link do.co slash nodeup. As an added bonus, every time a new listener signs up, another randomly selected old listener gets a bonus $25 credit. So let's back up to the very beginning you were talking about the fascination with connecting to a remote computer. Right. Now, I have, I have a similar story about, like, I went to university and I, was, I started off doing electric, electronic engineering. And then, you know, my university was connected to the early internet and it was like suddenly I was talking to people over my computer to somewhat other people in a different part of the world and just this whole idea of networking and, you know, those connections just hooked me. But I've never really found a satisfactory way to, to explain what that is that was so addictive and, and made me just drop everything and want to pursue that. Do you have a, a sense of what that, what that is, what it connected with in you? Oh, I, I think there's this unbridled power, or it was like, I, I think it was, it kind of goes into that, I think a little bit of that manifest destiny that there was like a treasure hunt around every corner that you there, you didn't know what was out there. It was kind of the unknown of going out there and exploring. And that really t- kind of set my path on being a complete nerd through school, having like HP 48 per calculators and programming them. One of my kind of coveted devices in high school was a HP 200LX Palm, palm Top. It actually ran you know, DOS on it and had a PCMCIA card that got a a modem on it. I got one of those lights over at Barnes & Noble that could clip onto your book so I could see the screen because it wasn't backlit. It had the tactile buttons. But then I took a phone cable and split the cables into alligator clips so I could clip onto any phone box and make a a long-distance phone call because my mom was getting incredibly annoyed at making these long-distance phone calls or interrupting her fax line to connecting to, like, BBSs. Because the Internet was kind of, like, taking off, but, it like, finding content on Gopher, the discovery aspect, was lackluster. And I, you know, I had explored, like, Usenet groups, which was another whole nefarious angle of things. And, you know, AOL. But really, at that time, it was, like, BBSs for me. And so, yeah, that was... That was kind of one of those treasure trolls that kind of took me down to like what can I find and unfortunately like living in more of a rural smaller town 
it always seemed like the good stuff was like in New York, Atlanta, you know, whatever. And this is a means to connect to them. Yeah, it was a means to kind of like reach out to these other places. And also to feel like you're, there was an element of like you're doing something mischievous, you know. It's the hacker mentality. It's it? a hacker's mentality, but like, like in reality, it was pretty tame. I, I can remember that there definitely seemed to be a much more liberal sense or openness to content because there was no advertisement. You know, it was just like free reign. That's something that I do miss, but I do think that we're still on this very much on this edge of that whole kind of manifest destiny and kind of going out into this new this new realm of possibilities. Did you end up getting much formal education? Yes and no. So I started going into school, and this is at the first bubble, like when Amazon's actually starting to take off and whatnot. So I'm, I'm enrolled, had a couple courses over at Colorado State, and I actually had an internship at a company, and I was working there, and I got a, I got a offer. And I, what I was learning from these full-time, like I guess you could say gray beards, uh, that's not all totally true because we actually had actually multiple female developers there at the time too that there was so much knowledge that they had and that what the educational curriculum system was in the schools was so far behind what I was being exposed to just in the afternoons at work. And so I made the decision to like, okay, well, I can make a lot of money and not be in debt and actually learn new cutting things. And if I'm willing to kind of like run with this, it probably won't be a problem despite the fact that my parents were just elated by that decision at the time. It has seemed to work out well so far. No, great, great, great. Because I do wonder about that in today's tech environment, how relevant formal qualifications and formal education really are. Well, I do think it closes doors. You know, and I think what you do, it really takes a certain personality. It's not something that I would recommend to anybody, right? And it has, you have to have a hunger and a desire for knowledge and you also have to have there's also a discipline that you know that school does provide in terms of actually how to filter and actually focus on things in a critical fashion and I think I went through and I still I think we all are constantly learning how to be more effective learners and more efficient but I do think that because of that attitude you know I had my stumbling blocks you know, if we're going to general web development or all these things, you know, for that type of, that creative thinker, maybe it's not necessary. But if you're wanting to go into some of these more deeper disciplines, like, you know, electrical engineering or even AI work, the statistical stuff, you know, I've been finding myself going back and filling in things with certain classes as I find knowledge gaps. So let's get on to the node story. Because I know it would be fairly unique for most listeners to hear a really early on story, but what was the entrance to Node for you, and how did you get so deeply into it? Huh. It re- actually comes down to one person. It comes down to uh, Guillermo Rauch. Who we've had on the show before, actually. I right. really enjoyed that interview. Right. So, I have a fascinating relationship with Guillermo. I'm actually became aware of him and actually interacting with him through the MooTools community. Never met met him personally. And I believe he was working he was working for some startup that brought him out into San Francisco. And at the time I was had just started working at Cloudera. 
So I was over at Cloudera, and we were we were actually conversing and hanging out quite a bit, you know, on the weekends here and there, and just kind of conversing. And he had a startup idea at the time, and which actually led to LearnBoost. The idea was like, you know, it was it was kind of going with like mobile devices, like actually having a whole based OS on on like iOS, you know, like iPod. Uh, Maybe it was a Rosetta Stone kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know the exact details. But the the thing was is like some in some of those early conversations, one of the things that Guillermo was actually really focusing heavily on was actually OT lib operational transformations, and that really was stemmed by the research that was going on at Google at the time, and that was like with Google Wave and some of the, the, the those newer technologies that were coming out. And at, right at that time, you know, Ryan Dahl had been working with Node. And that was actually what conversely led to the creation of, you know, it was those early conversations and the empowerment of the asynchronous, you know, kind of the, the design and the modern architecture within Node that actually was fueling that desire to push towards Socket.io. By playing with it, you know, by my early on exposure with Guillermo, I instantly knew it was like, oh my gosh, this is a game changer. After working with, like, trying to install monolithic Java environments, you know, after two or three days of, you know, configurations of setting that stuff up, or even, like, PHP environments or whatnot, it felt like a breath of fresh air. And so there was this electricity that kind of, like, attracted me instantly to it and so and also being heavily involved more coming from that front end world from like mutuals it just felt like a nat- more, much more of a natural evolution so I know you did a lot of work with mutuals and you were instrumental in that community which I guess brings up an interesting question about the overlap between front end and back end that we're still it's still an interesting question today and it has been for such a long time do you see yourself as a, a back end developer or a front end developer or some thing in between and is there a space in between that you can actually define you know that's a really good question I think that it's a really hard thing I I would say that I am more of a a generalist in terms of how I've become a developer and it's more about a pragmatic drive of what I need to accomplish or what my attention's on and then as problems have been created to go and fulfill or to go spread that knowledge to be able to solve the problems that I need. And so while I have been weak in certain things, I guess over time I've accumulated enough things where it's kind of filled in the gaps. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert at any one thing, which at times can be a bad thing, but at the other time, I do feel like it's more of a self-empowering thing of being able to, and I think that's also a product of being at a lot of different, like, small stage startups of, like, you know, trial by fire, jumping to what the problem is, and kind of just being able to tackle that. But my front-end drive really came out of a desire and a fascination with working with, I did not have front-end skills, and when I there's a huge gap that we might have to go back to, but I ended up in Florida and I actually ended up with a lot of artists and working with artists and that kind of got me really fascinated in jumping into web technology. So I got into CSS and all that kind of stuff and it was this whole really interesting communication problem with 
working with the artistic minds and a technical in this with technologies and trying to merge that those two conflicting ideas together and actually making something that represents the artist's vision yet still worked within the technology and, you know in the dark ages of the web where we had the the browser wars and incompatibilities with versions and all that kind of stuff so you know finding that discipline of finding that mix was a really interesting problem for me at the time okay. so learn boost is um, is one of these key I guess characters in the story of Node. Right. Um, it was. It, they, they were developing a company on. It was pre version two zero two, wasn't it? It was. I, I think we launched at like zero dot one dot one three three or something right. like that. Was, yeah. Which is like when in the really heavy days of API flux. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was the other one I, I, I am aware of that was really doing heavy work was Transloaded at the time. Right. With Felix yes. Geisendorfer and Kevin von Sonfeld. I mean, that's a crazy environment to be building a business, but a lot of interesting work came out of the LearnBoost team, or maybe it was just the LearnBoost ethos, I don't know, maybe you can help describe that. And the things that stick around today are things like Express is, comes out of there, really, and Socket.io, which has been so instrumental in shaping what Node is all about. What, are the, what, are the, what do you think are the most enduring parts of that Learn Boost journey that are with us today or have impacted us in a way that we see echoes of now? I think the modularity design of these libraries and well thought out, I, I think there was an ethos in terms of like documentation, you know, the quality packages and actually kind of communicating and signifying it. And a little bit of this whole marketing for better or for worse, you know, a new front-end framework comes out and you put a .io website out there. A branding of open source, so to speak, you know, which I think is really good. And one is order to share your passion and your insights and what's going on and to kind of help to move the whole community further. I mean, that's really where I think that was coming from, especially from like Guillermo's vision and what the whole company was about was education and awareness and to actually have it reach for everybody. So in that sense, I, I think it was insanely powerful for me on a personal level within that era was how quickly I learned how to move as a developer because one day we would have all of our templates our views would be in Hamel and the next day we're rewriting everything in Jade and the same thing would you know it was because of that modularity of being able to isolate components in this design system that the package managers gave us with Node is that we could effectively tackle huge swaths and actually refactor huge seconds of code radically with confidence. And so that was, I think, kind of like one of the other fundamental factors that I learned from it. The, the Node community has been like extremely aggressive and extremely progressive as far as pushing new ideas, boundaries forward. And that's, I think that's where we get so much kind of passion and loyalty in that growth that we see. So one of the things that, that, that really struck me when I interviewed Guillermo, and, and if you haven't heard that podcast, go back and listen to it because it's really fascinating. But the thing that really came out for me was the, the clarity of his architectural thinking. He's obviously somebody, somebody that spends a lot of time thinking about deep architect, code architectural issues and, and their impact all the way up the chain. So obviously that, we, you know, we see echoes of that in a lot of the, the LearnBoost open source world. 
TJ Holloway Chuck was another individual that was around at the time, and, and he has he's a very intelligent individual with some interesting thinking. Can you describe how those kinds of personalities drove the thinking then? And, and, and like, how was was TJ essentially another Guillermo, or were these two people? Oh, different. They're different, right? But there was also complementary things at the same time. I mean, in reality, they were they were on a different plane in terms of just their ability to produce code. I, I, I mean, there's there's been these rumors of like TJ being a hive mind. It's not true. The the imagery is amazing. Really, one of the one of the nicest individuals I've ever met. Also, very reserved. Very, you know. A little bit of an introvert, and so, but I have never heard fingers move across a keyboard so fast and with such authority. It sounds like, you know, chickmunks scratching in a door or something. I don't know. It's just like it's crazy. But what what I would say about what you're kind of getting at in that question, well, let me let me come at it a different way because I, when I was researching for my talk here at Node Summit about the the evolution of Node, I went to you for some thinking about the, the that era, right? And you. And because I, I mentioned Express and the way that Express had such a big impact on our ecosystem, and you you told me something about what you thought about TJ, which was that um, he was really good at taking ideas from other places. And in, in the Express case, it was Sinatra from Ruby, and translating them to this relevant space within a new zone. So I mean, uh, uh, yeah, with regards to Ruby. I mean, that's, yeah, a lot of the, I know TJ had a lot of experience coming from the Ruby background and whatnot, and it's, he translated a lot, so there, he has the advantage of being an early adopter, no doubt. That's not, that wasn't, he had this unique ability of being able to take ideas or even to transform them into a node way, and he actually helped to define what that node way is and to actually kind of like also to simplify and to reduce that architectural thing and to kind of make it his to to definitely make it his own and to put his own signature on it because there have been other efforts to take um you know tools or platforms or frameworks from other ecosystems like java and or even ruby on rails people have tried to like there's been multiple attempts at that let's take this thing and do it in node and it's been like direct one-to-one translation just hasn't stuck because it's like the the thinking is not like it hasn't translated that well but you you, you're you're getting at tj working at a slightly lower level than that isn't it right Right, and so it was almost like he thought, you know, where we think in English, it was almost like he was thinking in the code as far as like a, a, that expression. And with him and uh, Guillermo specifically, there was this unique ability and sensibility as far as like making things simple because we're breaking things out and we're dealing with so much stuff is to actually make these really think about these interfaces and to really so uh, actually it was actually interface driven you know they would almost write out code how do I want this to look how do I actually want this to look and then go backwards from there how do I actually want this interface to look? So a lot of it came down to development ergonomics. One of the, you know, on De Guillermo, one of the things in terms of like product design, I remember was like, it was a joke within the company was like, you don't have the eye. And there was so much focus and detail and meticulous as far as nailing layouts and actually having attention and sympathy for the end user, whether it be a teacher or a student or whatnot. And so it was this hyper-level acknowledgement of 
building product and who that is and making sure we didn't fall out of that point of view. Sneak is a London and Israeli company building developer-focused security tools, primarily focused on securing open source code. One in seven NPM packages carries a known vulnerability, and roughly 83% of Node.js shops are using vulnerable packages. Sneak checks your dependencies against their open source vulnerability database, and then helps you find, fix, prevent, and respond to any vulnerabilities in your application. If you're using GitHub, the fix can be as simple as an automated pull request that Sneak submits with the necessary fixes. You can easily integrate Sneak into a CI system like Travis or Jenkins to make sure your application is monitored continuously. Open source projects are free to monitor, and there's also a free 14-day trial for your private code. Find out more at snyk.io node. Cool. Now you've, so you've, you've been around for the whole time and seen the evolution of Node happen, really, and the way that it's, you know, splintered up into these really diverse little communities and little areas of concern, essentially. What are, for you, the themes that have been dominant throughout that have really shaped, you know, Node as, the essence of Node as, as being what it was at the beginning? Because I think there are some things there that you can actually trace all the way back. It's not like Node is now some new beast from what it was in the, in the past. It is still, at essence, what it used to be. So what is that? It's a really small utility. I mean, like, it's a, it's a platform for development that stripped away a lot of the garbage that we had from all these other monoliths and tried to keep it mean mean and lean. And I think Ryan also had this really kind of neat notion of, you know, this idea of moving everything into the community ecosystem and not, like, having the standard library was a huge fundamental paradigm in terms of driving the project forward. I mean, if you look at back, even at the, the dot one or dot two eras, dot four, compared to now, yeah, under the hood architecturally, things have changed and modernized with new versions of V8 and how ECMAScript has evolved. But overall, it's amazing how similar those things do look. I mean, there's been deprecations on APIs, but overall, it's actually remained very small and very much the same. And performance has been kind of this utmost, overall, a critical factor that's allowed developers to kind of not have to worry about this thing changing out from under them. In the beginning, Ryan built Node to be purely asynchronous. And like those sync methods were added. They were added early on, but they were not there in the very beginning. And Node's history is sort of spotted with this struggle of trying to overcome asynchronous or adapt to it because it, it, it's, it's true that it's, it's very difficult for a lot of developers to onboard to Node because they have to think differently. Can you talk about your thoughts on the strengths and or weaknesses of asynchronous programming and whether we, we're on the right track to you know, building new tools like language tools to work with them or whether, you know, as is my slightly more pessimistic view, we're trying to actually undo one of the best things about Node. Right. So, I, I mean, I feel lucky in that sense because I came from a lot of heavy lifting, like CMS design in the front-end world. And, uh, you know, I watched XML HTTP request, like, land and was super excited. So working with that, and even if you start to think about event-driven event handling within the DOM and had working with that for years, Node was just a natural fit. So having, you know not having synchronous activity, you know, 
it, I, it wasn't alien. It wasn't foreign. And actually, when you start to see the performance, you know, after working with, like, other back ends, you're like, why would I want to go back? So it is a paradigm shift, but if we actually look at how our world works and how we communicate, whether it's sending a text message to somebody and then not having that direct feed, we actually, a lot of our communication is moving into async, just as how we work as on a people-to-people relationship-wise, that in order to solve the problems that we're dealing with now and how we communicate with other things, it just seems like a natural evolution. It does have a more mental cognitive overhead but I do think that the pain is worth it and Ryan was correct in actually making sure that async looks different than that was the fundamental thing that he wanted to make sure happen is in Java or these other languages it's really hard to actually identify where the heavy IO is actually happening within your application and so having that the callback structures or you know these uh, this primitive async is really kind of a fundamental importance thing. Well, so how do you feel about async await then? Because that's, that's really an effort in trying to make things look synchronous. Right. I mean, but you have these keywords and these callouts that... There's still uh, some hoops you have to jump through. There's some hoops that you have to jump through. And it, it, there's signals that kind of can make that like, okay, I have that queue. I, I, I have other issues with async await. I mean, it more or less comes down to promises and what what they mean for the language and in general it's not that i have any issues against promises in themselves i think actually they're a great abstraction i think that there's some implementation issues and async await is actually probably the correct way of kind of moving towards that this promise you know promise promise world a paradigm there's caveats there's still foot guns there and that's where i'm I, some of that concern lies is uh, it's easy to start ser- serializing parallelization within an async await. Doing some loop structures can get like a little hairy. I've always been kind of a proponent of not having try catches. So, you know, it seems like there's some encouragement with try catches, and there's still some open arguments there. And the other thing is, is like while I actually think it's a beautiful abstraction, and I'm leaning towards using, you know, I'm using it more and more is the performance overhead. There is, a, there is a huge memory overhead because of how it works, and there's also a performance hit. So while I think it's a fun, clean, concise abstraction, if I need really mission-critical performance, I will probably revert back in a, in a hot code path to just callbacks. You're in a really great position. In, in, at NodeSource, you're able to go out, you do a lot of our consulting and you're involved in support and so you see a lot of node in practice particularly in large companies and all of the things that the negatives that come along with that and also all the positives and the trends I think it might be interesting to to loop back to discussions that we've had on node up particularly with Guillermo and also Brian LaRue about this the shift in the way we're dealing with infrastructure and whether and containers but also this whole new lambda and, and functions as a service world and Guillermo is doing something slightly different again. He's got a very strong idea of where he thinks it's heading. What are your thoughts on the, on, on the direction things are actually going? Because they never end up being that sort of perfect extreme. They, there's always this balance. But where are we actually heading in that respect? I mean, well, it's interesting that both of those people are, you know, actually kind of tackling that infrastructure aspect in unique ways. I think it's obvious 
that one of the more disruptive technologies that we've seen in recent times, you know, yeah, even more so than, I mean, it's on that level of Node. We're in our we're in our own bubble, you know, within the Node community. But Docker has really kind of fundamentally shifted the industry in uh, a lot of ways. I and the ability to actually have a mutable architecture and to actually capture your infrastructure and what's being deployed and to move that around almost transparently and have those artifacts is a, a huge benefit. Yes, we did have those before with VMs and with Puppet and Chefs. It's just the communication and the tooling is becoming much simpler and the overhead of actually running these things is much more efficient. So we're seeing a huge, kind of a natural evolution of like that the the infrastructure and the hardware is not becoming the issue. It's like what problems can we go out there and solve? I think people are starting to think on these like ridiculously massive scales because what we can start reaching for is almost you know it's the limitlessness of the the computing power that we're going to be having access to is quite staggering. It, it blows my mind. And that's all becoming transparent now as well, isn't yeah. it? We're not thinking in terms of a, a server and its connectivity. We're thinking about an application. You know. now, so you've been doing a lot of work with Kubernetes, for example. Is, do you see that more as the most interesting space where this is heading, or is that just, an, that's just one of the ways that we're tackling it? I, I, you know, I think in just in terms of like raw, absolute growth in terms of technology, Kubernetes is by far the most active right now. In terms of users, Node is you know the, the fastest growing technology. So of course it's 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 fascinating. I'm still I'm still bullish on Node. Kubernetes is super fun to play with, but it's infrastructure. You set it up, it's not something you play with like every day per se. And it's it's more of an empowerment. And I think from like a start It's one of those things you want to get out of the way so you can get to the interesting stuff. Right. You know, there's a lot of, it's a fast-moving technology, but I don't think it's something that, you know, you spend eight hours a day on, unless you, you know, if, if we're talking in a small organization. And there is, there is a lot of complexity there, and there's, you know, to kind of establish that trust requires a lot of different monitoring and capabilities there, but it's an empowerment. It allows you to kind of, like, not be limited to how you architect things and to actually have, also, it allows for, like, agnostic clouds, you know, depending on how you're using services within a cloud environment, a public cloud like AWS or GCP, it allows you to move, and you have empowerment over your cloud providers. So there's actually a huge fundamental shift in us as developers of what kind of choices we're going to be being able to make in the future. And interestingly, both Guillermo and and Brian are are actually thinking about those same issues, but from a completely different way, aren't they? Because Brian just released, was it Arc? Yeah, Arc Code. Yeah, yeah Arc. I think this is a website. Arc.code? Um, Arc.code. Yeah, okay. I don't know. Arc, anyway. Google for Brian LaRue Arc, and you'll find it. And that's, that's a distillation of some of the things that he's been doing at his company with regard to functions. That's, I mean, it's an interesting space. I, I, it just, it, do you see that that is, a, that is worthy of a lot of attention for developers or is it just something that we need to wait for it to shake out before we really you know start to obsess about those things I mean like you it's funny because even TJ's in that space too right you know I think that there's something to be had there 
I think Brian's stuff is interesting. I think like how everybody's starting to tackle that is a fascinating problem. Maybe I'm, uh, this is an area where I start to show my age is that I don't think it's quite there yet. And so if you do want to be an early adopter, this is a great place to maybe be a thought leader, as we can obviously see by who you just named off. But I do think that there's a lot of pain that still comes with these things and like visibility problems. You know, I've heard various discussions within other corporations that are actually building out Lambda their own Lambda platforms because of the lack of visibility that they get with some of these cloud providers. So because monitoring, you're, you're, you're actually introducing new paradigms in how do you measure this stuff? How do you actually get insight into your processes? Because one of my main focuses is it's not so much that does my app run fast and does it run well. I want to know about my process when things go wrong. I want that visibility insight. So a lot of the work that I do at NodeSource is focused on that. So I'm kind of coming from a little bit more of a conservative angle. Okay, so well, let's let's back up then because I want to talk about some of the other things that you see that are either emerging or worthy of discussion today. But why don't you tell us a bit about what it is that you do at NodeSource so that we can have some perspective. I, I guess in some ways I'm a technology therapist. No, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, what I do at NodeSource is I do a lot of the uh, our trainings. So we do some. There's other people that support me. I'm like I'm I am so lucky and fortunate with the talent that I get to work with at NodeSource and how much I get to learn almost on a daily basis. You know, within within our community within our company is so many brilliant and passionate minds. So. You know, working on the trainings, going into organizations and helping out with the trainings there. Also, our architectural evaluations. So, you know, anything that has to do with a customer success, I generally have a hand and a touch there. So, on the archivals, it's, you know, going in and evaluating, you know, the people, the process, technology, and, you know, looking at where the organization are, what are their resources, you know, what is their talent pool of that, and actually helping to kind of find the correct pathways and the correct, you know, identifying what's the appropriate way to tackle their their whole software development life cycle. And, you know, kind of coming at it from a pragmatic view of, uh, you know, you don't change something just for the sake of changing it, but, you know, is this actually having a pain point? And what does that mean going forward? And is there a risk associated with it? And actually coming up with you know, some measurable goals uh, around that and to provide visibility and insight for those organizations. So where Node is currently moving from that innovator stage and the really highly competent and highly technical company and individuals phase into a much bigger market of the essentially less sophisticated companies, not super high-skilled individuals. You know, there's, no, there's not enough TJs to go around, for example. I think that Node has got some challenges in that space, and, and I think we're seeing some of them as we go out there and we're trying to think about how we can solve them. But what are, the, what are some of the big challenges that you're seeing for Node for the average company? Is wanting to treat... I mean, I think you were alluding to this earlier with the asynchronous stuff. That, that's a huge problem, and it's like kind of that leveling up. I, I think a lot of stuff comes down to the visibility and insight into actually understanding what is this event loop? How does it work? And actually making it work for you. 
I think also there's a general lack of awareness. There's a huge attraction that's coming. You know, the thing is, is some of these organizations are not picking Node freely. It's actually more of like a virus. And it's coming into organizations in a lot of different ways. And sometimes it's through the front end leaking up. You know, and kind of the, these build systems that inadvertently kind of start popping up into the ecosystem. And that's a great, it, it's great that Node has this huge reach. The, the, you know, one interesting, one of the pros and cons of that is like the NPM ecosystem. With all these packages out there, there's an insane amount of amazing code that all these, you know, countless people have released that would use without question. The problem is, is actually how do you, you know, how do you communicate or inform your developers of uh, selecting those right, the right packages and like actually understanding how to vet code and working with the open source. Is it maintained? Has it been out of date? What is this, what is this API, you know, do for me? Is this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's a long laundry list. So those are, a lot of it just comes down to education and awareness of knowing that there's different things. And working with the open source, especially with NPM and how we, you know, we promote breaking things out into smaller and smaller packages, and then also microservices and whatnot, creates challenges for a traditional, you know, CI, CD pipeline. Because what does that mean for how do you test these things? Then how do you bundle all these things up together? Do you use your own registry? You know, how do you kind of like you know, solve these challenges and problems. So on a coding level, a lot of this stuff too is, you know, our tooling has evolved quickly in terms of visibility and insight. But we also have education problems with regards to how do you start a process, you know, like, you know, restarting a node process. We've seen everything from, oh, you know, register your error handler and just ignore the error and let that, that's generally a bad thing because we're working with a dynamic language. We don't know what, if things have been left in an invalid state. Or if you're restarting your process, you know, restarting it with a note, another node process. When, you know, on a traditional level, these are things that actually hurt nodes' adoptions within organizations because what we're doing is we're introducing whole new tool systems when, you know, we have things that work across a polygot environment, which generally is the case for these organizations, like, you know, relying on system D, relying on these things that is going to, you know, you're not introducing a new tool just because of the sake, oh, it's the cool thing to do. Right, right. An interesting conversation we keep on having with regard to enterprise adoption and, and patterns that are emerging is around TypeScript. And this one was, this is kind of unexpected for me. And I, you know, see the the advocacy about TypeScript as a way to maintain complex code bases across really homogenous, non-homogenous teams. <laughs> You're not looking forward to this conversation. Oh yeah. Look, um, but but the, the the thing about it is like we, you know, as individuals, we we may not choose to use it. But do you are you seeing it as legitimately solving problems out there, or are you seeing it pointing towards the possible future? solutions it's something that i'm struggling with because i am i'm facing this discussion more and more on a personal level i think i'm more of a purist and so it's not something i automatically reach for i think there's a several things to kind of highlight is it's moving very fast and it has some support of some very large organizations and 
when we're talking about develop organizations that are from the traditional like Java development or .NET, TypeScript seems like a natural evolution. That these, you know, if you want type safety, this is the way to go. I mean, it's actually kind of offering a, a natural evolution that's solving this problem, and it re- it does remove a whole host of, you know, stupid coding issues, and it can also help with performance optimizations with how V8 works. So there is benefits there. Some of my issues, though, is if it's a green field, I would probably lean, if you have a brand new project, I think I would lean towards it a little bit more. If I have a larger code base, like a brown field, I've heard more... I've heard more issues there with regards to it's a pain in the butt to kind of go back and implement all this stuff. But my, I think my strongest contention against it right now is that it modifies your code. Mm. And that's, that's something that, I mean, this is, a, <laughs> I'm not going to make many friends here. That's some, one of the things that I have against like Babel and all these things. Babel and these other tools have been great for experimenting and trying new features. But if I'm running production code in Node, what I want to have and I think is necessary if we're going to start using these kind of transcompilation steps is that we need source maps within Node Core. Right, right. Yeah, that's. I think I'm going to have a note up soon discussing TypeScript with some practitioners and, and, and delving into it a bit more because it's definitely a space where I think the at least the limits of Node or JavaScript are being pushed. And so even if that is not the solution, it's pointing towards a solution space where things might happen. So I'd rather see it go into the language language itself. Optional typing. Right. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors, relying on users to report them, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster, with a lot less noise. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployment in a few minutes. Rollbar works with all major languages and frameworks. Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, and of course, Node. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow, send alerts to Slack or HipChat, Create new issues in Jira or Trello and link your GitHub, Bitbucket, or GitLab repos. We have a special offer for NodeUp listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Sign up and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Let's look back at these new, these new wave of companies that are adopting Node, and I, I know we're focusing more on enterprise and, and companies here than individuals, but I think I just think that Node is, is more at that phase now, so we're less talking about hackers and, and hobbyists, and we're really talking about companies because they're driving heavily the, the adoption and the future of Node and the, because of the way they use them. What are some of the reasons that you're seeing companies either adopting it or being dragged into Node? Why? Why are these coming? And, 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 and do they align with the traditional reasons? Because like, I know that some people are still very much stuck on Node as a performant platform, and that's why you would choose it, and you want to squeeze out everything you can for your application. Are those still th- things still holding true, or are there other reasons? I think there's a lot of other reasons. 
this whole aspect of a lot of the front end tooling has moved towards Node, right? Like the package, the the it's pretty much got a hundred percent saturation in the front end tooling space, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's been kind of the natural evolution, and it doesn't matter where your ecosystem is. You know, you're going to have to build front end code. So Node has kind of naturally moved in as a tool chain that way. And as a result, we see a lot of, you know, you start to see experiments, and it kind of allows for quick wins. I think one of the other aspects there is a, a glue. It, it's because of how it's been designed around, like, streams and pro, it, it's, you know, proxy all the things. And so it's great as, like, API glue for abstracting old legacy interfaces and kind of, like, building out API gateways. So we see a lot of that within older establishments because it allows you to pivot and move much quicker in terms of deployment strategies and even the simplification of allowing front-end developers to have a place where they can start working on things in the back-end without, like, actually messing with, you know, more complex algorithms. React has been a really interesting place where this stuff has kind of, like, come into play and this concept of server-side rendering. So that has kind of also made some interesting challenges in that space as far as, you know, pushing the limits of Node and what it can do in that space. Yeah, okay. That's a, that's a fascinating topic. I'm going to have to find someone to, to delve into that space, I think, more. Well, I mean, one of the things is, is React is great, and a lot of people, I mean, we all know as far as its popularity and its growth, the, the thing is, is uh, a lot of this push to node and the node adoption is actually this for the server-side rendering comes down to what I see as a, a fear or actually still that we're, we're playing, we're slaves to our search engines. <laughs> <laughs> Get into a bit of dystopian philosophy here. Right. Um, so, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's tackle this from a different way. Do you think that Node is starting to, or do you think we have maybe already defined where Node's optimal place is in the stack? Because I, I have this theory about different platforms and different languages and that, that they eventually you know, find their place. And I actually think that Go, for instance, even though it's newer than Node, is already finding its optimal space and it's much narrower than people hoped in the beginning. Do you think Node has found that already or is it still this really you know, spread out um, Hydra? Yeah, it's, it's machine learning. <laughs> right and high, and high and, and high precision mathematics yeah yeah uh, no it's definitely found it's i think i think node is actually still sorting a lot of that out it, it has a lot of maturity in terms of in a lot of different places one is is we're starting to see desktop environments with electron apps you know node is heavily influential there we're you know Obviously, it's becoming more and more ubiquitous with web development and even like API, you know, the API layers that I was talking about earlier. We're also starting to see much more movement into IoT. I mean, you can't bet against JavaScript right now. I mean, it's been, it's the most heavily deployed language. The runtimes are like in more places than any other place, other language on the planet. Does it mean that it can solve all problems and it's the best tool for everything? No. In terms of like the availability and adoption, and maybe the fastest thing to market, you know, those are the. I think what we're trying to do is find that those balancing points there, and so Node does fit a lot of solutions, 
and actually helps to kind of reach a bigger, more appealing audience. I would call your perspective much more on the realism end of the spectrum. I wouldn't call you a pessimist necessarily, but you're, you're very connected with the reality out there. So with that perspective, what are your thoughts on what the future holds and what technologies or movements are most relevant or going to be most relevant in the coming years? Do you have thoughts there or is it... Yeah, I do. And I've had this conversation a lot. And I, for me, it's not really important until it has some more hooks into the DOM from my perspective. Other... Nate, is your thinking on WebAssembly, has that matured much or are you... It's just like something on your radar. It's on the long-distance radar. I'm not spending much time with that right now. So what other things then, given that? What what other things are going to be relevant? The reason I ask this question is I, I I always ask it of people I interview because I know there are people listening that are at the beginning of their career and they're looking for a place to be or a place to specialise. Because this, this ecosystem, even if you just think of Node, is so massive that no one individual can span the whole lot. We have to specialise. And if somebody wants to really make a career of technology, or Node particularly, they need to find places to specialise. And so what are those places that you think are going to end up being important? Because, and what, what might be a dead end? Like, we, we covered this with the whole containers and functions, Lambda, etc. Is there anything else you see emerging or really caught up in just the now? I think we're going through a huge shift of a lot of different things. And it's actually, there's a lot of cloudiness in terms of what's, what is going to prevail and how that, uh, that stuff is going to shake out. I think when you start to talk about technology is not being afraid of change. And also, right. you know, looking at what's coming up and also being a you know learning how to adapt to things and to also try things this comes back to that whole intellectual curiosity conversation those having that and being having that self-reflection and self-honesty and discipline is what's going to make great thought leaders in in this space so I kind of avoided the question uh, but that's okay though because I and I think the men it sounds like your answer is it's, it's so unclear that you're, you're best to actually focus on your ability to adapt and learn. Right. Yeah. I mean, look at it. Java's been around for over 20, you know, what, I guess over, yeah. It's been around yeah. for, like, the popularity of the language has been insane for a, a numerous amount of time. There's still even new development going on in it. So things... On one level, things don't change that fast. If you want that stability, you can have it. It's a matter of finding out, do you want to ride in the fast lane or do you... It's finding the problems that are important to you. I think that the technology... We do get caught up too much in the technology for the sake of technology. And we ha- we're creating these projects and open source in some ways has an, a sickness with this with regards to you know, delusions of self-grandeur and all this kind of stuff, of wanting to feel like we're important, connected, where we, we lose sight of the fact that technology is made to solve problems. So find problems that you like solving and then find the technologies that make that easier to solve. And, and perhaps in the JavaScript world, we're particularly affected by that by the if you look at the way the front end changes it's 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 part front end is so attached to the creative world where 
you've got immense churn right. that it, it impacts it really heavily and then on, even JavaScript on the back end we're also impacted by that same sense of urgency to create and renew and reinvent. Right. I think some of that is to, it's, there's minutia there in that job work. You know, there's a lot of creativity that comes out of it but when you're doing it from a day to day uh, it gets a little boring, you know, and having these side projects or these other things or creating a new framework injects a certain element of creative freedom or empowerment. And so I do think that's where, you know, there's this balance. Yeah, now, I actually really like that message of accepting that change is inevitable and therefore being able to deal with change and adapt to it. And also something I know... Whenever I speak to more mature programmers who have been around for a long time, and we've got a few of them on our team that have been through so many cycles, this this sense of perspective, so that when the next hot thing comes along, like Docker when it came along, and everyone was jumping on it, it was the next great thing and it was going to take over everything, not to get too carried away. And, and I think we're experiencing that now in the front-end world with React. Right. And we've, we've, probably, we've probably got a few that we're not seeing on the back end. Well, Docker still has its sharp edges, for sure. And that, you know, it makes sense for a lot of things. We don't really... I think if we're talking about microservices that are stateless, it's amazing. If we're talking about trying to put databases in them, it doesn't necessarily work. It starts to get a little bit funky in terms of how that modeling works. Also, if we really start to want wanting to access to the kernel-level things... Docker doesn't necessarily, it starts to break down in certain places when we want to run profilers or whatnot on a kernel level. So, you, you know, it's it's being aware and looking at, does this, adopting technology for the sake of adopting technology is the wrong answer. Adopting it for, because it's, uh, it scratches an itch or it solves a problem or it makes your mental the the amount of mental overhead that you have less those are good those are those are could be justifiable reasons so it's it's having this measuring and that's what i say by always learning is taking time aside and you know getting a new book uh, every 6 months or whatnot and looking at a new technology kicking the tires on a new tool chain you know over the weekend it's making that time or allocating that time to actually identify those things without actually getting exposing yourself to the risk proposition of those. Yeah, I, actually, I think that's advice that I probably would have appreciated earlier in my career because I found myself getting stuck in dead ends a bit too much. Right. Yeah. Okay, we might wrap it up there, Nate. This has been a great chat. Hopefully, I'll find opportunities to have to include you more in Nodop and have some more chats. How can people find you on the internet, or can they find you on the internet? Oh, I do try to hide out sometimes. LinkedIn um, is your preference. Yeah, LinkedIn is definitely the way to go. Um, yeah. I'm underscore NW underscore on Twitter, and then I'm just NW on GitHub. So those are great ways. Or, you know, if you're looking for me in person, I'm generally hanging out in Colorado, either sometimes drinking a beer or out for a hike. Cool. Excellent. Okay. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much. Cool. Thank Thanks you. for joining us. And I'm Rod Vag, and thanks for joining us on Node Up today. We'll see you next time.